Blog Talk Radio. This is Entertainment Life on the Sasha Marina Show, a show about the entertainment and music industry, where you get to hear from the top and up-and-coming stars, from amateurs to professionals. They're all just working hard for success. This show is to give those the opportunity to speak about their talents and what they're doing to succeed in their dreams. And now, here's your host, Sasha Marina. Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I'm your host, Sasha Marina, and you're tuned into the Sasha Marina Show. So today I have a real, real cool guest. Uh, he goes by the name of David Owen, um, Omen, I should say. And um, he's from Hollywood, California. He's a producer, um, and he dedicates himself to a certain genre of filmmaking and so forth. I, I think it's a very interesting uh, sort of thing because it has to do with the with the life beyond of what we live in every day. And um, just to make it more clear about what I mean, it's, it's just really all the paranormal life um, that's, that's just beyond of what we could even think of and what we even have the knowledge of. So, I mean, without further ado, I'm going to have David on the show, on the line with me. And also, he's actually the first of the series of people I'm going to be interviewing for the Shock Festival that's going on um, in Rally Studios in Los Angeles, California this Friday. So, hey, David, how are you? Very good, Sasha. Happy New Year to you, by the way. Happy New Year, sir. How are you? I'm so glad. That I'm very good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. So, like I mentioned, you're the first of my series of interviews for the people that are going to be part of the Shock Fest Film Festival. Tell me more about how you like got started with Shock Fest. Is this your first um, your first time with uh, you know participating in Shock Fest? Yeah, not only is this my first time participating with Shockfest, but this is also the first um, film festival that my movie house at the end of the drive has ever been entered into. So for me, it's a double um, first time on both. <laughs> double whammy, starting the new year real, real right. Um, you you mentioned that, uh, David, you're the house at the end of the drive. I want people to know more of your backstory and why this film is so important to you. Sure. Um, well, the story, the, the story of my film actually goes back to about 14 years ago when I bought this lot down the street from the Sharon Tate murder site, which my father had discovered in the L.A. Times uh, classifieds one Sunday morning and called me up and says, uh, I, found this, I found a house, a, a lot. And it's like, a lot? Okay. And, goes, and mind you, this is like 8 in the morning on Sunday morning, so I was passed out. And my dad calls me and goes, look, I want you to meet me here. I found this lot. Go go to these coordinates, and I'll see you there in about 20 minutes. The next thing I know is I'm driving up there, and I'm going, God, this looks awfully familiar. And when I finally got up the private driveway, I looked around, and I said, oh, my God. I said, that's where the Sharon Tate house stood. And he drives up, and he says, what's wrong? I goes, um, you know, I, I see this is the lot, and literally I'm on a private uh-huh. drive up in Benedict Canyon, and I look to my left, and I see a hillside, literally just a vacant hillside, and in front of me, about 150 feet away, is this gate. And I said, oh, my God, I haven't been here in years. And it was the location where the Sharon Tate murders had taken place at the hands of Charles Manson. So to cut to the chase, my father and I bought the lot, and we built this house here. And during construction, we had strange things happening, like um, 
in some of my contract laborers would say, David, were you here yesterday late in the afternoon after we all left and moved some of the, the tools around? Because um, some tools that were on the top floor, some power tools, we couldn't find them until the fall, later on in the day, and they were downstairs on the third level in one of the um, closet rooms, closets. And I was like, well, what? I said, no, <laughs> I, I haven't been here till today. And then as mm-hmm. it got further and further on into the construction, I started noticing when I was on the job site that I would be on a floor or in a room looking around, and I'd feel like a presence behind me, like somebody was standing there. And I would immediately turn around and go, okay, what do you want? And I go, there's no one here. Well, at the end of construction, I assembled all my contract laborers, and I said to the guys, have any of you guys had any weird experiences that you haven't told me about during the construction here because you didn't want to freak me out or freak yourselves out? And mm-hmm. one kid says, yeah. And this guy's 22 years old from El Salvador, and he doesn't know anything about the Sharon Tate murders because it's well, mm-hmm. well after he was born. It's, you know, it's history. And he goes, I'm on the third floor working late in summer, and I hear voices and footsteps coming from the top floor. And I'm the only one there. He says, it's about 6 o'clock, and everybody's gone, and I'm working late and finishing up some stuff. And I go run up to the top floor and look, and there's no one there. So I figured, you know, all right, I must have been hearing voices from the next-door neighbors or something. So he goes back downstairs and starts working again. And again, five minutes later, he sees voices and footsteps. And this time he says, I'm positive the, the voices and footsteps are coming from upstairs at the top floor. So he runs upstairs with a hammer and he's looking around, like figuring somebody's going to be robbing him or something. He says, there's no one there. He walks onto the street, looks up and down the driveway. He says, it's empty. There's no cars. It's like 85, 90 degrees still. And he goes, I don't understand it. He says, but I don't care. I'm tired. I want to get the hell out of there. So he goes back downstairs and he starts packing up his bags. Within about a minute and a half from him getting downstairs and packing his bags, he says, I start hearing footsteps coming down the spiral staircase, which is just wood. There's no, no carpet, so he says, I can hear these footsteps coming down, and they're getting louder and louder until they hit the landing, and I come out the door to look to see who's there, and he goes, there's no one there. And all of a sudden, he says, it happens. This ice-cold wind or breeze comes whisping across the back of his neck. He says, it's crazy. It's not like it's a big breeze. He says, it's isolated, like a two-inch strip of cold air that rushes right across the back of his neck. He says, the hairs on the back of his neck sit straight up. And he says, and I quote, a dos mios, a dos mios, ya my boy, ya my boy. Which means, <laughs> oh my God, I am leaving, I am leaving. He didn't come back yeah. in six weeks. And wow. I said, why'd you come back? He goes, I didn't get paid for the three weeks earlier. So I decided <laughs> I would come back and I would be the first one every day to leave the house so that I would never be left alone in your house ever again. Oh and that was the actual beginning of my encounters of, you know, the creation of this film because that was just one of many things that started to happen to me here at the house once I moved in. And within about two years, I started feeling like, you know something, there's, there's something to this this paranormal activity occurring in my house that doesn't frighten me, but it motivates me to do something. And I started becoming very compelled and interested in in seeking out, you know, writing a story. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden I started having these vignettes pop up in my mind's eye as I'm walking down the street. And I said, what the hell is that picture? I see, you know, this little mini movie playing in my mind's eye. And I said, okay, 
I, I don't know what this is, but this is strange. And it was watching a little mini two, maybe a five-second film clip that I'm in the middle of, and I'm watching unfold, you know, in front of me, and I'm going, okay, I see a guy driving up my driveway in a convertible. Oh, shoot, it's me. And I see myself turning to look to the left, and I see this girl, and it's a beautiful blonde-haired girl with a bandana, with long, flowing blonde hair, and she looks like she's dressed in the 60s attire. And I said, what the Mm -hmm. hell? And I turn my head, and I see, oh, my God, I'm going off the side of the road. So I turn the car to straighten it out to go on the, on the driveway. And as I do, the camera comes up and shows the rearview mirror and there's no one there. That was the very first vignette I saw that, it, that caught my eye and said, okay, this is strange. So I said, who is this? And I heard this voice say, it's Sharon. Write this down. So I said, Sharon? Sharon who? I don't know anybody named Sharon. And I swear on my mother's and father's lives. I said, Sharon, I heard the voice say, Sharon Tate, write this down. And I said, okay, I know who you are. I'm not going to say no to, the, to somebody that's, that's, that's passed away, that, lives, that lived down the street from me, and piss them off. So I went back and I wrote down the little vignette. This goes on for about two months. And in different places in the house, outside, in different areas, and I'm just going about my business, and I see a little vignette pop up in my head, and I'm like, Okay, I've got to write this little vignette down in detail. So after two months, I had like 50 vignettes in little, little like paragraphs. I got a friend of mine who's a writer to come over. I showed him the vignettes, and he says, David, he goes, writers, this is what writers do. And I said, what? And he goes, they brainstorm, and they come up with little different pieces of a story in different scenes, and they write them down. And then what we, he said we can do is we can take this jumble of scenes and, you know, put them together like a jigsaw puzzle and arrange them in a way to make this into a, you know, a feature film. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, that's where the inspiration for House at the End of the Drive came from, was kind of to honor the memory of, of Sharon and the rest of them who died 45 years ago come August down the street from my house. That's really where this... Um, the story came from. I can't really take um, 100% credit for it because it was just a gift. I'm uh, sorry, for some reason I'm just getting really choked up about it. And I think it's um, just my way of you know, paying homage to those who um, were slaughtered that night and the rest of them as well. The La Biancas, Shorty Shay, and all the other people who were killed at the hands of the Manson family. So that's really the... Uh, the uh, you know the uh, genesis of the story and the script. You know, David. Obviously, this is something that you're very passionate about because it you've seen it firsthand. You put it firsthand, and paranormal activity, not the nonsense that we're seeing in TV and and stuff right. like that, that fictional stuff, but the real paranormal activity in this world. Because I've I've come across it a couple of crazy. Because you're like this just can't be happening. I can't be hearing these things. And then you question yourself, why is it that I hear it but I can't see it? Is there something else that I'm missing? Am I not, you know, am I not um, capable enough to actually see this paranormal being in front of me? Because obviously I hear it. You, you know, what's the difference? So, um, have you ever, or after going through all of this, did you do more research into into this paranormal side of life? Um, yeah, what have been well, your other involvement with this? 
Yeah, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, it um, was something I was always intrigued by, was ghosts and hauntings as a child. Um, and honestly, it was probably one of my wildest dreams to actually be able to be in a place that was really haunted, if not to actually own a place that was haunted. Um, and so what happened was is that after I started, once I moved in and things started happening and I started hearing footsteps and voices and different things and actually seeing apparitions out of the corner of my eye, like dark, as I call them, um, shadow figures that would appear and like you'd see some movement out of the corner of my eye or your eye and you'd turn and you'd look and there'd be nothing there. But you'd swear mm-hmm. as sure as, as you were alive that there was something that just moved to your left or your right. And it was like, okay, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but I definitely know I'm not crazy. So I researched mm-hmm. and got some people that were paranormal investigators to come out. Um, I think it was on the 35th anniversary of the murders um, 10 years ago. I had mm-hmm. uh, my first experience bringing out some paranormal ghost hunters. And, um, yeah, it was it was pretty sensational what they were able to pick up without me saying two words of things that I had experienced in the house. They were saying, well, look, at this spot, we feel that there's somebody that was here, and it's like, son of a gun? That's where I remember having an experience, hearing a voice talk to me and say something. And so I go, okay. And I don't tell anybody anything because there's no point in tipping your hat and saying, well, this happened here, because there's no test for these people to actually um, be to utilize their talents and their instruments. Mm-hmm. So to me, it was like, I want to know flat out what's going on without letting anybody know, uh, you know, beforehand what the activity is like. So they can tell me and I can say, yeah, as a matter of fact, I did have something happen where you're standing. I did have some, see an apparition here. I did have an experience here in the house. And it was validating and very intriguing. And it actually opened it up so that I actually have, have since in the past 10 years, have had about... Um, I'd say about 35, 40 different um, paranormal investigative groups come in here, as well as TV shows dealing with the paranormal to investigate the house. And what was it? Because when you were talking about, you know, um, you guys scouting for this land and your father wanting to build there, what was it about that after you even noticing what had happened in that area? What was it that you guys, that made you guys just follow through with you know, with the whole construction of this house. Well, I'll be honest with you. It had always been one of my dreams as a kid since my father was a builder and he built mm-hmm. the house that I grew up in was to build a house with my father. And um, mm-hmm. the real, the, the truth and the honest to God's truth was is that the lot was a foreclosure and it was $40,000. So mm-hmm. even if even if it was the Menendez brothers or some terrible human being that lived at the end of the street... I don't think it would have turned my father's ear any other way but then, but to buy the property because it was a steal <laughs> at $40,000. So I, I have to say, I think it was a financial issue that anybody with half a brain would have said $40,000 for a $350,000 lot plus $150,000 mm-hmm. worth of, of additional improvements to the lot when we bought it because somebody had tried to build on it 10 years or 20 years earlier and they were stopped. So we basically bought, you know, I hate to say about a half million dollar piece of real estate for $40,000. So that's the real crux of how it is that, um, why it is that nothing would have stopped my father from buying this lot and building a house. So, I mean, I mean, wow. Did you guys ever um, look back into the history of whoever owned that lot and the reason why 
they let it they let it go because maybe you yeah, never know I, it had something I, to do with all of this. Mm-hmm. No, as a matter of fact, it, it really was much 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 more mundane than that. It was the simple fact that the neighbor um, and the city had decided that the house that was being built there wasn't. Um, it, the street wasn't wide enough to support um, what was an emergency vehicles like uh, fire trucks. But as it turns mm. out, that okay. was 20 years earlier. And in the course of time, 20 years later, different um, laws had been enacted and stuff. And so they relaxed the uh, restrictions on the property. But the bank had already foreclosed on the property and no one had known about it. So it literally sat there for 20 years in the bank's ha- holdings but never um, was discovered until 1999 or 98 when they said, hey, we have these pieces of real estate. We need to sell them. They're dogs. Get rid of them. So the bank didn't mm-hmm. know. So the bank just sold it as a foreclosure, as a non-buildable lot, at which point my father did a little research and said, oh, that's, that's an old, uh, an old um, restriction. It no longer applies. So we basically bought it and built so the truth behind this pretty much it was just all business. It was cheap, yeah. it came in handy, and now you're making history out of it. Tell me more yeah, about how sort of. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'd have it was a serendipitous, you know, it has it's a convergence of the uh, stars. I was never ever as a lot of people have suspected and accused me of interested in buying a house or buying a lot down the street from the Sharon Tate house and building mm-hmm. a house. It wasn't Oh, I need to be close to the house where Sharon Tate was killed. Oh, I'm I'm going to find ghosts there. It was the furthest possible thing from my thoughts had anything to do with that. It was just, as you <laughs> said, strictly a luck of the draw and business was more, you know, the, the mighty dollars certainly had more to do with it than the mighty spirits. <laughs> Tell me more about how the production of this film took place in this house. Um, that, quite, that uh, uh, honestly, I'm that's very a great. <laughs> well, Sasha, I will say this to you after we get off the after we finish our conversation, you know, on the interview, I'd be more than happy to invite you up here to take a look and experience it for yourself, so you can tell your your viewers and your audience. Yes, I actually went to the Omen House, and I'll tell you, it was pretty. I think your story will will will, will rattle a lot of people's chains because it's. It's very, very unique, the uh, properties of the house. But back to your question. During the production, we had, a, we had a pair, a husband and wife team that came out as our on-site psychics. And I know that sounds corny and stuff, but after the first day we were oh, here no, shooting, not to me. Mm-hmm. we had a, a few people going saying, um, I just had the strangest experience. I was downstairs in the third level bedroom, my makeup artist, and she says I was setting up my table and I looked and I saw a picture of Sharon Tate, an image of Sharon Tate on the right side of the uh, the mirror, the makeup mirror. I said, yeah, and she goes, it's not that it was, it was an image, because I know I had an image, but I could have sworn the image was on the left-hand side, not the right-hand side, and it was black and white. I said, yeah, and she goes, the image on the right-hand side was color. I mean, it was black and white, and the one on the left was color. And I turned to my left, and I looked again, she says, and it was no longer there. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, the image that I saw disappeared. I said, are you okay? And she goes, I'm not very happy. I'm feeling very uncomfortable working here. And a couple of the other people brought the psychics in, and afterwards, more stuff started happening. 
my um, mm-hmm. wine producer was upstairs in the kitchen by herself, you know, putting together a cup of coffee, and she says, I turned to my left, to my right to see a man walking by the window. And I said, walking by the kitchen window? And she goes, yeah. And she goes, his, eyes, his eye and uh, my eyes met right as he crossed the frame, uh, right Christ crossed by the edge of the frame of the window. I said, what's so strange? She goes, I said, wait a second, my window in the kitchen? And I, she goes, yeah, that's what I said. I said, what do you mean? She goes, I ran outside and looked, and I looked down the side of the house, and I said, oh, my God, there's where the window is. And she looked straight down, and she goes, the stairs that are alongside the house at that place are 16 feet below the window. She oh goes, and I God. know I saw somebody walking right next to the window, right straight across, not in an angle going downwards, but straight across. And she described them to me. And the description looked identical to that of one of the victims of the Tate murders from 40-plus years earlier. Okay. So with that said, you know, we, we the psychics are saying, oh, yeah, they're visiting. They're here. They know what's going on. They want to just let you know that they're just keeping an eye on the production. I said, mm-hmm. well, tell them to be a little less obtrusive because they're freaking the crap out of my crew. And mm-hmm. the last person who had the strangest of strange experiences here was my um, key grip. And he was in the third level bedroom, again, where the makeup artist had that experience. And mm-hmm. on the last night he was here, he was staying here for two weeks during the uh, production. And he said, on the last night he was here, we had a seance with the two on-set psychics. And he says, I go to bed at 2 o'clock in the morning, and I put my head on the pillow and within five minutes later, I hear this dark voice say, you're coming with us. And literally, he says, my body was dragged up to the corner of the ceiling, which is a 10, 11 foot high ceiling, he said. And he goes, I said, oh, no, put me back, put me back, I don't want to go. And he goes, the next thing I know, he says, I'm sitting on the opposite side of the bed, bolt upright in the queen size bed, and I am freaking out. And I said, oh, my God. He goes, yeah. That's what happened to me. And he didn't tell us for six Mm -hmm. months till six months after the film was finished because he was still so traumatized. And he said, he goes, I have never, ever believed in ghosts, but after my experience at your house, I don't know what to say. And that Mm -hmm. was one of the greatest experiences in the house with the activity. And, you know, did you ever think perhaps of doing a behind-the-scenes with people actually speaking of of the happenings going on during production? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I was able to get um, Charles's um, The Key Grips um, interview mm-hmm. on tape because it was just, I just couldn't say no to that. I was like, Charles, I need to get your interview. With your permission, I want you to tell us exactly in your own words what happened. And when you watch the three-minute interview, it, you can see in his eyes that this guy is not pulling the wool or trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. He's just telling you the experience he ha- had firsthand with no axe to grind, no agenda, and it's just as sincere and as clear as you can possibly imagine. And it's riveting. It definitely sounds it. Um, what else, I mean, do you feel... Do you feel that, I don't know, what about the actors? Did this somewhat have, um, did this inspire them more to be in the role that they had to be in for this film, the happenings Um, in the house? 
Well, unfortunately, well, one of my leads um, who plays a skeptic in the film is actually really a skeptic. So we would sit mm-hmm. there and have arguments and discussions, heated debates about the, abil- the possibility of, of ghosts. And he was like completely adher- adroit to saying, nope, there's no such thing as a ghost. This isn't going to happen. I mean, the, personif- the, the, the epitome of a skeptic, skeptic. You couldn't say anything. You couldn't show him a picture that he would give any credit to as being attributed to a ghost. Um, okay. So, as a matter of fact, Jonathan Mangum is that person I'm speaking of. He's on uh, Let's Make a Deal Every Day with Wayne Brady. So, when Jonathan and I talk to this, even to this day, he goes, so what's going on in the house? Anything? Yeah, right. I don't believe you. <laughs> Nothing has changed with him. There's not a, not a change in the character or the perception, even though he experienced things. He attributed them to, to natural causes and nothing to do with the ghosts. So, no, for the most part, nothing that we had experienced here affected my actors to sway their belief one way or the other. They came in with their beliefs, and no matter what happened here, they left with their beliefs, be it you know, believing in ghosts, or as Jonathan Mangum said, I don't believe in them. They don't exist. So no, wow. not, no, nobody was really swayed either way. Okay, where what else? Are, what else are you trying to do with this film? Because obviously it is based on true facts and so forth, and this, and you are premiering it here on on, on Shockfest. What are your goals with this production? Well, my goal with the film is to get it out into theatrical distribution and to um, bring something new to the audience that's out there that goes to the uh, film-going audience because myself, as a film-goer, I have gotten so completely um, tired of watching old television shows and mm-hmm. old movies be remade, and not even great movies, but crappy movies being remade with new stars and new celebrities, and I'm like, well, I can watch the original on, on YouTube or rent it or put it on television. Why do I want to see somebody else's interpretation of an, of an old movie that was okay in the day, but it's really like, you got to be kidding me. They're, like An example, they're remaking Logan's Run. That was mm-hmm. done like 40 years ago, and it wasn't even that terrific of a movie. That's kind of like... Why well, I want to really bring something to the audience that's interesting, original, and entertaining, not just loaded with big names, big stars, um, and a hollow story. And that's my goal is to get this out and to let the audience decide if this is a fun story that they want to see more of and get more audience members to get out there and see it and then get this to a you know, worldwide release. Um, I'm so glad that you being a producer, especially there in the land of, of filmmaking from the of the United States, that you've actually mentioned that. Um, yes, all these all these remakes of titles that were big at, in their time and that haven't even been so long ago. You know, some some right. of these titles that are being redone have have been like 20 years ago. You know, the original was made 20 years ago. It's I don't feel, I feel like the, the originality of filmmakers or the writers or screenwriters or whoever is putting these films together has, has kind of gone, gone away because it's just, like, like you say, some things it's just too much. I, I honestly don't even bother, David, going to the theaters as much anymore. It has to be a title that I really feel that is like, wow, you know, I want to see this. Because I'm not, I have Netflix, and I can go back to seeing movies that are way older than my age and 
and, you know, being amazed by that kind of film work than what we have nowadays. I mean, I'm not going to lie. We have the CGI. We have the bold colors and the things popping out in your face and all that crazy stuff. But the originality, like you mentioned, is not there as much anymore. So, I mean, yourself as a producer, hopefully, you know, you get to put more of these things out there for people like us that love independent filmmaking and things like that can get our hands on. No, I agree with you 100%. I think what you're talking about with all the bells and whistles is just window dressing. The actual story, which is supposed to be the focus of the film, has been Mm -hmm. thrown to the back seat and said, okay, stay back there. The people in the front seat are going to be CGI, 3D, great color, Mm -hmm. great HD. And I go, so what does that mean? At the end of the day, you have all the the trimmings, but the, the actual turkey is a dud. And that's really what happens. And that's, I feel the same way you do. There's, not, there's no reason to go out and see a movie that's a remake of a movie from 20 years ago when it's like, okay, why don't I just watch the original? And I can enjoy it a lot more and really get into it because today it's all about the special effects. Michael Bay is known for the blow-up director. He blows mm-hmm. things up left, right, and center. <laughs> the I, mean, <laughs> I hate to say yeah. it like, well, it's, 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 he's, he's, he's known for being the, um, what is it, the, ex, the, ex, the um, explosive director because he explodes yeah. everything on yeah. his sets. Everything's, it's like, great, but that's not a story. And that's really what's sad, as you said, the creativity and the idea that Hollywood has gotten to the point where everything has to be so safeguarded that there has to be a guarantee that you have gotten the top-notch actors and stars, even though they might not fit for that character, that doesn't matter. They want that star because it's a guarantee that they will succeed box office-wise. Where I've taken the exact opposite of that kind of thought and saying, you know, I want a, an audience member to identify with my characters and not look up and say, oh, there's Johnny Depp. Oh, God, I remember him as the pirate. I remember him as this. You don't get to suspend your disbelief of the character. Instead, you're thinking mm-hmm. of Johnny Depp or Melissa, what's her face, the one that did Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I'll never forget. I saw her in The mm-hmm. Grudge, and I was like, how come I feel like I'm waiting for a, for a zombie or a vampire to jump out from behind every turn of, of her step, of her way? I just And I couldn't mm-hmm. take myself out of saying, oh my God, I'm watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And it took away from the film. I couldn't you know, enjoy it because I kept on seeing Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So mm-hmm. hopefully House at the End of the Drive, which screens the Saturday at 3 o'clock at the Shakta Film Festival, will get some airplay and some interest from other people, and somebody might take a shot saying, you know something, I want to see this in the theater as well for other people. And we'll take it out to 100 theaters and see how it does and try to roll it out further. And that's what I really would like to see happen with it. Because I think that once you see it in the theater, and hopefully you will too, Sasha, on Saturday, you'll mm-hmm. you'll say... I was not only entertained, I was interested in what's the backstory about? What's the real story behind this movie? Because that's where the interest of your audience gets to be drawn in. You bring them in because they're intrigued. Otherwise, it's just mm-hmm. entertainment. And next, give me another one. Next, give me another one. That's not mm-hmm. what this is. This is supposed to make you think and say, these were real people. I could have been in that situation and identifying with those characters as real people and as nothing too strange out of the ordinary that occurred, people will get more sucked into the story and saying, oh, my God, and also make them conscious and aware about the people that were really 
the inspiration for this film and their poor tragic ending? You know, uh, well, sadly, I won't be able to attend the festival because I'm currently in Miami. But I definitely oh. am interested in watching the movie when it hits distribution. And about that invite to that house, I'll definitely look into it the next time I'm in L.A. But Absolutely. David, I've... Give me a call. <laughs> All so right, David, kids, I'd like to thank you. You have more to fear from the living than you do the dead. Just remember that. Yeah, I should be more scared of the living. Crazy things happening out here, David, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so everyone, please um, search up this film. Um, The trailer's on YouTube. You can go to houseattheendofthedrive.com. You can go to YouTube um, forward slash David Ullman. There is the the trailer and many other things, that videos that he has there. You can go to Twitter at houseendofdrive. You can go to Facebook, house at the end of the drive. And just look up Google, I'm sure, House at the End of the Drive, and you'll find it. Just Google David Oman, and you'll find it. Um, David, thank you so much for your time this morning. I know it's early over there in Los Angeles, but I'd like to thank you very much. Sasha, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, and I look forward to seeing you here in L.A. when you come back to town. <laughs> thank you, and good luck this weekend. I'm sure, thank you. I'm sure you have a standing ovation. Thanks again, Sasha. It's been an absolute pleasure. Have me on anytime you like. Thank you. Thank you. Happy New Year, David. Happy, Bye-bye. Thanks again. Bye-bye. That was ladies and gentlemen. That was David Ullman. You should totally check out this film. Totally. Later on the case, um, follow-up um, interviews for people attending Shockfest, well, filmmakers attending the Shockfest this weekend, come on Cobalt, uh, Thursday, here on the Sasha Marina show at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I'm guessing 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And tomorrow, I think I'll be having the crew, the creator of the Stockstone Festival, Gil, and his host, Brenna and Johnny. So, tune in. 